Good afternoon and welcome to this Institute for Government event on arts and humanities research in the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Dr Alice Lilly, Senior Researcher at the Institute for Government, and we're delighted to be bringing you this event this afternoon with the support of the Arts and Humanities Research Council. At the IFG, we've long been interested in how researchers and policymakers can engage each other to understand and improve public policy. And there are perhaps few public policy challenges that are as immediate or as vast in scope as the COVID pandemic. For many of us in the UK, this week marks a year since life began to noticeably change as COVID took hold. The pandemic is, of course, first and foremost a health crisis, and science has taken a leading role in treating and fighting the virus. But the pandemic has also had profound economic, social and cultural consequences. It's affected almost every aspect of our day to day lives, from how and where we work and learn to how we balance professional and family life, to how we consume, what we do with our leisure time, and even how we communicate with each other. So the arts and humanities are at the forefront of efforts to understand the longer term social, cultural and economic consequences of the pandemic, as well as helping to shape a range of immediate policy responses. How can researchers in the arts and humanities best engage policymakers and shape policy debates? How can they ensure that the research they do generates change? And what has the pandemic meant for how researchers go about their work? To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to be joined by four academics from across the arts and humanities, whose research speaks to a range of the pandemic's consequences. Dr. Rebecca Brown is a postdoctoral research fellow at Oxford University's Hero Centre for Practical Ethics. Dr. Sabrina German is senior lecturer in law at City Law School, as well as a member of City University's Centre for Healthcare Innovation Research. Dr. Frances Hollis is Emeritus Reader in Architecture at London Metropolitan University. And we're also joined by Dr. Adam Baer, Senior Lecturer in Contemporary and Popular Music at Newcastle University. Thank you all for joining us. Now, before I turn to our panellists, just a couple of quick housekeeping points. First, do be aware that this event is being live streamed and recorded, and we're also live tweeting this event. If you'd like to join us by tweeting along, please do feel free using the hashtag IFGHumanities. And second, if you've got any questions for our panel, we're really keen to hear them. So please do post them in the Q&A bit on the side of your screen where we'll be keeping an eye on them. We'll try and get through as many as we can uh, so you can start posting your questions now and keep on going. Uh, and if you see a question already posted that you think is particularly interesting, do use the like function, which will bump it up our list and means we're a bit more likely to get to it. Uh, and if you are asking a question, please do let us know your name and where you're joining us from today. So without further ado, I'm going to turn to each of our panellists who are going to speak for about five minutes or so uh, about their areas of research and expertise and offer some initial reflections on how they've adapted their research and impact work in light of the COVID pandemic and how they've tried to influence debates over policy as well as policymakers. So uh, first, Rebecca, over to you. Thanks very much, Alice. Um, it's great to be here. It's really nice to be invited. A part of me feels like I should be in the audience for this, really, rather than sitting on the panel. I'd be um, fascinated to hear uh, how we should go about influencing policy and, um, and being useful at times like these. But anyway, I'll, I'll discuss a little bit of my work and what I've done um, recently. So I am a philosopher and I mostly work on public health ethics issues and uh, over the last few years, this is really focused around questions of responsibility and how we think about whether or not people are responsible for behaviours that affect their health in various ways. So, um, so my focus has been on chronic disease rather than the current focus with the pandemic of infectious disease. So I'm, I'm mostly interested in, uh, in chronic diseases like uh, cancer and um, various forms of heart disease and lung disease. 
But when uh, when the lockdown happened and when we all started thinking very seriously about um, COVID-19 and what this means for us and what it means for, for policy in the UK, what countries should be doing, um, it became clear that perhaps I should think a bit less about uh, technical questions of responsibility for habitual behaviours and consider uh, what my kind of public health ethics work could contribute to something like um, the discussion about their ethics of policy responses to COVID. And a couple of my colleagues at the time, so this is quite early on in the in the lockdown, so kind of April time, I think, um, a couple of my colleagues had started getting questions about immunity passports. And um, one of them had appeared on Al Jazeera uh, on a news piece where they were being asked to comment on immunity passports. And we thought it would be quite useful to to have a bit more of a think about this and see if we could write something sensible about the prospect of documenting when people had um, been infected with COVID-19 and subsequently recovered and were then presumed, perhaps, hopefully, to be immune and whether they should still have to observe all the kind of social distancing and restrictive lockdown measures that the rest of us were having to stick to. Um, so that's what I spent most of last summer doing really was kind of thinking and writing a bit about immunity passports and and focusing on the kind of ethical issues here and um, it was mostly questions about so so to begin with actually lots of the concern was really about there were empirical questions right so um, do we know that people are immune how robust is immunity how long lasting is it um, to what extent does it prevent transmission those kinds of things and so that those those sounds like the kind of that those sound like the kind of things that an immunologist should really be dealing with as opposed to a philosopher and ethicist. Um, but but some of the things that we need to think about are just how 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 certain do we need to be about those kinds of questions before we kind of restore people's freedom. So how um, confident do we need to be that someone will be immune for at least six months or at least a year um, before we start introducing something like an immunity passport. Um, so there are ways in which ethics and philosophy can contribute to those kinds of debates, like how we interpret the empirical evidence, how important it is to have certainty. Um, this whole time, the World Health Organization was saying there's, we have no evidence of immunity to COVID-19, which seemed like a really unhelpful thing to be saying. It just wasn't true. Um, you can't know you can't know if immunity to COVID-19 will last for 10 years until you've waited 10 years after people have encountered the, the infection, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a reasonable guess about um, how persistent immunity is likely to be and how protective. So, so those kinds of questions I felt we could contribute a bit to. And then there were other kinds of questions around fairness and discrimination, um, concerns about privacy, these kinds of things that uh, were more squarely kind of ethical questions. So, so this is really what me and my colleagues were, were working on. Um, in terms of uh, kind of how, how we sought to engage with or influence policymakers, um, I have done more media related activity with these kinds of questions than with any work I'd previously done. Um, and I played a reasonably passive role in this. I mean, we published two papers, one in a medical ethics journal and one in Lancet Infectious Diseases and um, and no one paid that much attention until the first vaccine was delivered in the UK. And at that point, um, immunity passports turned into vaccine passports. Uh, and suddenly there was quite a lot of interest around um, whether people who'd been vaccinated should still be subject to kind of lockdown measures and these kinds of things. And um, how this was going to shift over time as more and more people became vaccinated. And so since kind of early December, there's been quite a lot of um, discussion in the press. Um, we've done various kind of radio, TV um, interviews and interviews for, for kind of written articles and those kinds of things. And it's what I found um, difficult, um, but important here is to try and maintain a degree of um, kind of intellectual honesty around um, my feelings about immunity passports and where I think the 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 arguments lead us. So it's easy because I'm cards on the table. I think that there's um, strong ethical reasons for introducing some some kind of immunity passport. Um, I think the, the arguments for 
for not allowing them to be used are fairly weak, and particularly the ethical arguments. Um, but that could change. You know, things, other contextual factors are important to that kind of a position. And it's quite easy to get pushed into a position where you're strongly advocating a particular policy. And I don't want to do that because I think there are lots of things I might not know about that could make immunity passports a bad idea. Um, but if you're given two minutes on Radio 5 Live um, and three questions, then it's quite it's quite easy to kind of make the mistake of just straightforwardly advocating a, a, a policy come what may. And particularly when the arguments against them are being presented in very poor and uncharitable ways, I think. So um, so I've done quite a bit of media and we've also just recently um, uh, led by a colleague of mine actually submitted uh, evidence and our thoughts to Michael Gove's um, review of, of immunity passports or vaccine passports. So I don't know um, how useful they'll find it, but uh, but we've kind of to some extent done our bit there to try and um, present the arguments as we see them. Um, I don't know how, how long I've been talking for. Alex, Great. But, no, um, that is perfect. Good. Um, okay. That's a really good starting point. So thank you very much for that. Um, and I suppose then sticking with some of the um, more kind of ethical and moral questions that have been raised by a lot of the, the medical and, and scientific aspects of COVID. Um, Sabrina, uh, it'd be great if you could go next. Thank you very much, Alice and um, the Institute for Government and AHRC for, for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here and following uh, Rebecca's great contribution as well. Um, it, I'm going to talk on the same theme of, of the impact of the pandemic on uh, my research as an early career researcher in law. Um, for me, the story is slightly different because everything started kind of in April 2020. And the reason was that I was still on maternity leave and that was the last week of my maternity leave. And I got a gentle nudge from a senior colleague uh, at City that said, oh, there's a call for papers out um, from uh, uh, one of a peer review journal that we publish. And, um, and I said, really, what am I going to be talking about? That I have a child that I'm homeschooling, that my hands are cracked with hand job because I'm a paranoid uh, public health lawyer. Uh, I, I don't know what to talk about. And she said, no, just fall back on what you know. Um, and I know a little bit about um, ideas of justice, uh, NHS reforms, because I had just uh, published in March 2019, my, my monograph on uh, healthcare reform and these ideas of justice. So I thought, how about looking at whether or not COVID-19 will be kind of a unprecedented eventually was uh, and whether or not it will affect the egalitarian kind of approach of the NHS. Um, so that was the first piece of peer review publication. And to my great surprise, as an early career researcher, it was published very quickly. Um, and then I decided, well, this is great. Let's apply for funding. Let's do all those things that I've uh, haven't done so far. Uh, and we uh, went with my co-investigator to apply to to uh, fund for two applications. Unfortunately, not successful, but we got the idea uh, far enough to be elaborated that we're still taking on the project and got secure internal funding for it. And that allowed me to get some networking with people outside of my field in organizational studies. Uh, and there's the political context around the pandemic that played a big role as well in my research, uh, particularly the Black Lives Matter movement um, that highlighted some areas in my research that I wanted to showcase and I didn't have the chance to. So I focused more on gender and race issues with my co-author at City, Adrian Young. And we went on to write a piece uh, on ethnic minority and migrant women and their access to healthcare and whether or not the pandemic has heightened uh, these barriers. And we were really shocked again um, to see the piece published within a month or so and um, to see it score uh, among the top five most downloaded articles of that journal. So uh, that was a great surprise. So when we had these peer reviewed articles or I did in hands, I decided um, to go to, you know, further in the dissemination and try to create impact uh, as I I was taught by uh, the HRC and Institute for Government the workshop. So usual suspects, the conversation, um, UK is a great place to, to start writing a blog post on uh, COVID and the NHS and another one on ethnic minority and migrant women uh, with my co-author. Um, and then I was approached by an academic blog uh, that wanted me to write about my own um, monograph that was published in 2019 that went a little bit unnoticed when it was published. And then all of a sudden I was a very hot topic uh, for healthcare because I was talking a lot about resource allocation and rationing. Um, so at that point, the mainstream media started getting interest uh, and that was time where I needed to change the sweatpants for kind of the blazer and get on TV. 
um, for my first TV appearances. Uh, so I was uh, approached by a Turkish channel that's the equivalent of Euronews, and they were very much interested about healthcare workers and their treatment um, and healthcare rationing and triage. Uh, and and then the, the written press approached me, The Times and then Al Jazeera English were interested uh, to offer comment and um, even German newspaper Freitag was, was, was interested in that. Um, so that was really nice and very impactful and very quick, but also there were downsides to the pandemic. Let's be honest, it's a very disruptive event for all of us. Um, and as I was mentioning before we even started the event, uh, I have two young children. Um, so that meant that we have had periods of self-isolation because of um, different people at school having COVID plus the homeschooling, this uh, previous lockdown that have greatly impacted my, my workload and the way I work. I don't think I've worked so late at night ever since I left uh, the private practice of law. Um, also, a very big downside was the third peak of infection. Of course, <laughs> needless to say, it's a downside for everybody, but it coincided with the beginning of my sabbatical, which meant that my research project on uh, the impact of medical professionals in the guidance of emergency guidance for um, COVID-19 could not start um, and has been on pause ever since uh, because they were simply too busy to answer uh, questions as participants in my study. They were fighting on the front lines, so understandably, they could not do that. Um, but there's light at the end of the tunnel, I would say that the experience that I have acquired uh, in a very short time span, uh, I have been able to transfer in a multitude of projects that are more or less related to the pandemic. And I see, of course, that the frontline workers now are less busy and more available. And I see their willingness also to uh, work with us uh, to try to create impact within the profession. So it not uh, my impact would not be necessarily at the governmental level or the policy making just yet, but this is uh, very clearly more at the organizational level uh, and impact on the Royal Colleges and the way they um, deliver or draft their guidance and try to make them more consistent and fair, um, reflecting my research on justice. So I think I'll, I'll stop right there. I'm happy to answer questions. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sabrina. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot we'll want to pick up there um, a bit later, particularly as well about some of the just very practical kind of logistical challenges that you mentioned to anybody trying to do research or impact work um, over the last year. Um, on which note, um, I think it'd be really helpful to turn to Francis, who's thinking about something that I think is affecting all of us in this event right now, which is how we balance our professional and sort of work and home lives. Francis. Thank you, Alice. Yes, so great to be here. Really interesting conversation already. And um, my research is in a different field. Uh, I started 20 years ago um, by getting fascinated by buildings that combine dwelling and workplace. And over the last 20 years, I've developed a field of research that I called the architecture of home-based work. And uh, so I started by my doctoral research. I've done dozens of case studies. I've written the history of the, this building that combines dwelling and workplace from medieval times to the present day in England, and then done a big spatial analysis and, and uh, developed a whole series of spatial typologies. Published a book, got a, a big knowledge transfer fellowship from the AHRC, and then a lot of interest in the Netherlands but really, in the UK, it was like, this is too difficult to do. This is, and so, it, and so the research was sort of running into the ground. And I was thinking, well, this will probably be really useful in about 20 years time when we all have to work from home because of climate change. <laughs> and it never crossed my mind that something like COVID would happen. And then, of course, a year ago, suddenly we're all working from home and the fact that I've done this, this research into the architecture and, and urbanism of home-based work suddenly became incredibly relevant. And so this has been a very, very busy year for me. To start with, I had no idea what to do. It's like I've got this body of research. How do I, how do I get it out there? And so I started by sending just a tweet a day that said, brilliant building designed for home-based work number one. And I got to number 43 before my workload overwhelmed me. And um, it, I suppose it falls into four areas what I've been doing. Uh, collaboration, I've built up uh, really interesting collaborations with a whole range of different people, in, including a little um, startup 
the Work Home Project, which is investigating and, and promoting good design for home-based work. Um, influencing, we've, uh, I've, I've submitted evidence to three APPGs, the Welsh Mandatory Quality, quality Standards for New Homes Consultation, because basically something I wouldn't have dared say a year ago is that our homes need to be bigger. In the UK, we, we build the smallest uh, new homes in Europe, and actually we need more space if we're going to work from home. Um, I've submitted evidence also into the housing and social mobility APBG's inquiry into housing and employment, because the, the, in many ways the, the people who've really suffered are the young and the poor. The middle classes tend to accommodate their home-based work through under-occupation. They have a spare bedroom, they have a garage that they don't use much, they have room for a shed in the garden or they can build an extension. Whereas uh, people in social housing or young people in shared housing simply don't have that luxury and have been really, really suffering and struggling as a result. And the third has been the suburban task force. Um, and of course, what's happening in the suburbs is absolutely fascinating. So what's happening in, in the central business districts and the suburbs and the transformation that's happening to both areas is something um, that I've been writing about quite a lot. Um, I am being invited to speak a lot. Um, <laughs> so to this week, I think there are four events, including the European Commission and uh, the Northern Ireland Federation for, of Housing Associations. And uh, in a way, what I'm finding really interesting is that people are, people are really, really keen to find out more about this field in all sorts of different areas. So um, the fact that housing associations are, are thinking about how they can help their social tenants to work from home is, is a really a really big one for me because um, I think the stats show that in May last year when more than 50% of middle class people were safely working at home full time away from the virus only one in five working class people were and so COVID has, has thrown up some really major um, just cast light on Did, didn't create them they were already there um, social and spatial inequalities um, and then new research. So um, I've been involved in a few, a couple of surveys. Um, I've, I've put in two bids, um, both relatively small, but one successful. I'm, I'm working on space standards. So this is the whole idea that current space standards that all new housing is built to um, don't take any account of the need to work from home. Um, and then um, I've got a couple more research bids that I'm developing. Um, one is about principles, standards, and, and a toolkit for designing for home-based work. And one is about bringing um, home-based work in social housing out of the shadows, because not only do people, uh, social tenants not have enough space, but very often they have tenancy agreements that actually either prevent or prohibit them from working from home in their, in their social housing. Um, what else is there to say? Uh, that is incredibly complex. That will do. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. And I mean, again, just a, a huge amount that I think we can draw out from that. And something that's quite striking already from um, the three of you who've spoken is, is the way that you do sometimes have to be prepared to play a bit of a long game here, that some of the research that you might have been doing for years and years is suddenly something that's that's topical um, and we can talk about a little bit about that in a bit. Um, just a reminder, uh, do keep uh, sending your questions in for our panellists and we will um, start to turn to those very soon. Um, but of course, while we've all been uh, shut up in our homes and trying to child mind and do our work and everything else, and there are lots of things we've not been able to do during the pandemic, uh, key among which is kind of cultural activities like going to the theatre or watching live music. So Adam, over to you to talk a bit about that. Thanks very much and thanks very much for having me and also to everyone else uh, for um, really interesting contributions, a lot of which resonates with, with what I'm about to say actually. So my research area is uh, 
popular music, the sociology of music and the music industries uh, with a particular focus on live music. And this point about the long game and our previous research coming into play uh, is significant here. So some of my prior research projects have been looking at uh, <clears throat> there was an AHRC funded uh, investigation of the cultural value and we looked at the cultural value of live music you know against and in, in line with its economic value and also the, the local ecologies of music conceiving of a local area as on an ecological model the relationships between different types of venues and different types of practitioners and non-musical actors as well which of course includes policymakers so that might be local councils in a city or you know scaled up DCMS uh, for instance uh, as part of that um, in 2017 we did the a UK live music census which involved uh, sort of volunteers going out into uh, all venues in their city uh, on a census night and marrying that up with surveys and qualitative work so that kind of wholesale model of, of how live music fits into its local area has become salient now. Uh, obviously live music has been hugely impacted uh, by COVID-19 and our own uh, research as well. So I had uh, different, my, my research has been affected in different ways. Uh, there was a project uh, with colleagues in Birmingham uh, looking at which was going to apply that census model to Birmingham as a case study. We didn't do a, an in-depth investigation of Birmingham as one of our case study cities the last time. And the, that was looking at music in a post-2019 environment, the original emphasis of which was Brexit. Mm. But that model of sending volunteers out and going into dozens of venues of a night and going between them to head count and look at how many musicians are playing and how many people are in the audience on a census night even if the venues had been operating that would have been tricky clearly that model in in the context of the pandemic is difficult to conceive of anything that's as diametrically opposed to a healthy uh, practice in, in the middle of, of a pandemic so we had to really turn that project uh, on a dime and re-emphasize it towards more qualitative work and interviews engagement with uh, mm -hmm. venue operators but also the organizations that are working to support uh, the live music sector and so previously we we've been working with uh, UK music musicians union uh, Music Venue Trust, and all of these organizations are involved in something called Next Start, um, which is, I will just remind myself, a national exit strategy advice and response team for hospitality and entertainment. So these are these new kinds of support agencies uh, that are evolving. And I think that's key to my research has always been, but is particularly now engaging with uh, government, but also at the same time with industry and with those other bodies that also engage with government like a two-pronged two uh, approach the other response was new applications so with a colleague at newcastle uh, the british academy um, did a small grant scheme in response to covid uh, so my colleague at newcastle larry zadza is a counter tenor so we are looking at the experience of classical singers whose careers have been put on hold uh, as much as venues uh, through COVID. Again, that's qualitative work. Yeah. And we've also uh, put into the uh, UKRI, the AHRC COVID uh, Agile Response Scheme, which again is with those industry bodies as partners because they're doing research as well. Uh, and so that, you know, the research that we do can be useful to them and their findings useful to us so those, those sort of multi strands along time alongside the um alongside direct engagement with government and 
likewise, it's, it's about sort of maintaining relationships. So I've been mm -hmm. attending for a while now the Scottish Parliament uh, cross-party group on music. So yes, there's, there's submissions to inquiries, but there's also that sort of once every three months just being in a room or a, a Zoom, as it turns out, <laughs> to have those conversations. Uh, and as uh, Rebecca and Sabrina mentioned, writing for academic journals, but also likes the conversation. Uh, I've been writing occasionally for um, the New European just to get get an audience that might not automatically turn to academic journals or indeed have access to academic journals. So that's about where we are at the moment. We've got the, the British Academy uh, grant on the go. We're finishing up now the Birmingham project, uh, which was uh, funded by the AHRC's Policy and Evidence Centre, run by Nesta, and we're waiting to hear uh, about the, the COVID application. So, uh, a lot of common ground, I think. That's it for now, let's um, look forward to questions. Great, thank you all so much for those initial thoughts, and we've got lots and lots of questions. <laughs> Um, flooding in, which is always good to see. Thank you to everybody watching. Um, so just to, to pick up on a few of those things, um, a question that um, has been asked by uh, John Charlesworth in the chat, so he's pointing out that of course Arts and Humanities covers a huge spectrum um, of activities. Um, but also, you know, he's, he's asking, and this is uh, not the easiest question perhaps to answer, but what do uh, each of you see as perhaps the main priorities in responding to COVID in the next 10 years? Um, and if I perhaps just add to John's question, you know, what do you think are going to be the top two or three issues that policymakers are going to be most uh, engaged with? Um, Rebecca, shall I perhaps start with you? Uh, sure. <laughs> um, I uh, I don't know how to make the answer any smaller than responding to COVID, and um, uh, so so trying to get to a point where we can um, have something approximating normal life again, with perhaps keeping some of the changes that people have thought have been um, very positive. So perhaps. Uh, m more homeworking is the norm, those kinds of things, more um, active travel and less uh, less commuting in general. Um, but trying to return to something that allows us to socialise and, um, uh, and live our lives in the ways that we'd wish without risking the health of um, the most vulnerable in society in particular. So, so, so as far as I can tell, you know, just trying to work out how we can keep infection levels low um, prevent any significant um, further waves of infection, uh, particularly really scary um, waves that you know could risk the effectiveness of vaccines and those kinds of things. And and kind of learning from it from the future. I mean, this is undoubtedly not the last pandemic that um, that people are going to experience. So kind of learning lessons from this one to um, to make sure that future ones are dealt with better. I hope. I mean, some of the responses have been um, less than we should expect, I think. And uh, and we can we can learn from that and, and do better next time, I think. So so that doesn't sound very helpful, but I don't know how to <laughs> I don't yes. have one neat thing that I think is is the most important or even the top three, I suppose. No, that's a very fair point. And yes, sometimes we cannot give simple and straightforward answers to questions. Yeah, sorry, I'm a philosopher, so I'm a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, Francis, what about you? What do you think um, are kind of the key issues facing policymakers in the next decade? Um, from my perspective, from the perspective of the built environment, this is a paradigm shift. And for a hundred, more than a hundred years, we've been systematically separating dwelling from workplace. And what we have to do now is find ways to reintegrate these two things. And this is enormously problematic because it's not just our buildings that have been designed as monofunctional entities, but all our governance systems are, are in silos. 
So um, it's housing or it's it's business. And we've got we, we're going to have to do some really, really interesting reworking, unpicking of um, systems like our planning system, our property taxation system, our tenancy agreements, all sorts of uh, insurance, mortgages, all sorts of uh, areas, fields of policy that are going to need to be unwrapped to see where the issues lie and then unpicked and reworked. And I think this this work is happening already. There, there are really, really big um, movements to start to think how 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 can we redesign our built environment to to meet this 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 new challenge? Adam, what about from your perspective? Um, I think well broadly two things. One is I don't know about the next ten years, but um, in terms of culture, I think what the policymakers could do perhaps more than they have done recently, understandably, given that the situation has been moving so fast, uh, is to think a little bit more strategically and a little bit less tactically. Uh, it's not just a, a question of, well, how do we get the venues to reopen safely, for instance? I mean, the venues are doing themselves a lot of work on that. Uh, it's thinking that actually three, four years down the line, once they open, that's not it. I mean, for a start, things like festivals are planned two years ahead. Musicians will have lost uh, their PRS revenues, their, their performance revenues for the last two years, at least for the next two years, sorry, from not having operated recently. And then I think there's going to be as part of that, I think a, a sort of very careful unspooling of, of all the um, the changes that have been made over the last year so that that culture recovery fund has been the single biggest injection of cash into um, the cultural sector admittedly just to keep it afloat such as you know in, in you know in generations and it's how to unspool that without just pulling the rug away Mm. You know, the whole the, the size of the state now compared to two years ago is uh, enormous and it's and, and certainly that applies to culture how do we if we do you know how, how do we tack away from that or forward without just uh, knocking down the, the bottom cards on the house of cards how you know how, how do we maintain that level of support in a financially sustainable way uh but without just sort of switching off life support for venues that say okay well you're open now that's that's that so that's maybe not 10 years but that is a good five years worth of of thinking ahead uh, that mm -hmm. needs to be done and for the next five years it's just sort of managing in not maybe quite the same way as as housing but you know live performance has gone online there's all these new business models that are emerging how do, how do we sort of manage those many of which involve data and shift, you know, shifting data in a sustainable way so that grassroots practitioners can also benefit from them and it's not just the you know the the such and such a city symphony orchestra or such and such a major label artist. Mm. Uh, and Sabrina, what about you? Um, I guess my answer can be a little bit more uh, straightforward because it's 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 at the core of what's in the media and, and really on the mind of, of, of the government, I believe, at, at the moment. Uh, we have to address social structural inequalities um, that have been brought into sharper focus by the pandemic. I think it's pretty obvious when we're looking at the impact of the virus on the Bain community, for example, I think minorities have been greatly affected for a number of reasons that range from, from nutrition to, to housing to, to really socioeconomic factors um, that need to be addressed. That, that should be number one priority, um, hopefully for any government in power. Uh, and that goes hand in hand as well with the work that the government is, is looking at right now with their new white paper uh, on, on reforming, again, yet again, the NHS. 
Um, and, and this is an interesting proposal um, that hopefully uh, gives a lot of power to um, the Minister of Health. Uh, interestingly enough, and, and it would be interesting to understand why um, that was the particular choice made by the government to structure in that way. But um, to a, a second aspect of that, white paper is really uh, greater integration at the local level. And we've seen local authorities uh, throughout uh, lockdown one, for example, uh, calling for more integration to be able to implement things better. And also the, the role of clinician um, in healthcare law and policy, as we've seen kind of a little bit of a disconnect at the beginning of the pandemic in the first few weeks, we, we see guidance from Royal Colleges, the BMA, um, but no national guidance that's been officially published, although there was there were drafts circulated. So it's interesting to see the dynamic there of rulemaking and allocating resources that are very scarce. This is something that has always been going on in healthcare. Of course, we know the NHS is strained, uh, but I think it's been brought to the attention of the public when, when you start thinking about numbers of ventilators and whether or not you're going to allow certain category of people of having access to them or intensive care units, um, you see these debates are really brought into a different light. And that's something that uh, is just underlying in the healthcare system, but now it's been brought into more dramatic terms. So I think that um, this is something definitely that, that will need to be addressed as well. I suppose picking up then um, on that point about the scale of decisions that are having to be made by the government at the moment and, and in the midst of um, this pandemic. We've got a couple of questions from um, John Mason and Anne Burrell, which I, I think kind of both get a, a similar issue, which is, um, I suppose, how you can bring the public in to a lot of these debates that are, of course, about public health, they're about people's um, personal circumstances, people's individual freedoms and so on. Um, but we're seeing a lot of these discussions, you know, made at, at government level out of necessity. Is there a way, do you think, that researchers can help perhaps bridge a bit of that gap between policymakers and the public? Um, and do you think it's it's helpful to try and engage the public in these debates? How might researchers go about doing that? I'm ha happy to speak a little bit about um, this with regards to the research that I conduct on on guidance drafting. Of course, um, the circumstances under COVID-19 are very different than usual um, guidance drafting um, because typically you, you see a process, for example, with NICE that uh, is in sequences that are, are longer in time. So you uh, issuing guidance can take months and years. Here we had to, to see guidance being um, done and published within, within weeks obviously to answer the needs of frontline workers, but there's always patient involvement. Uh, bioethicists are involved and patients are involved. And I think there's a movement in general uh, with healthcare innovation, for example, of, of patient involvement um, uh, because their experience matter. So um, looking at the different factors, and that's what uh, we are looking at with our project is uh, looking at different factors that haven't impacted the, the guidance drafting in this very unusual time um, needs to take into account what was the place of the patient experience there and how um, later on looking at how patients have reacted to, to their experience during the pandemic uh, and of course this the patient experiences has been greatly impacted on other um, aspects of healthcare cancer care for example or uh, any other aspect of the NHS really because of the suspension of certain interventions um, I think with regards to structural inequalities um, in our research, we call for the government to involve um, ethnic minority groups into the development of, uh, of this new NHS or this reform NHS because it doesn't adequately answer their needs because they might not be as involved as they should be in designing um, the system and um, to, for, for, the, for the system to answer their needs and not, not the way, other way around of them trying to fit themselves into a system that doesn't really mirror their reality. Mm. Adam, had you wanted to come in as well? Uh, yeah, it's a, a slightly more general point than that, but I think that one thing that um, arts and humanities researchers generally are quite good at doing is constructing narratives, taking you know, data points and, and people's experience and you know, academics in general are, are able to take a longer view and to, to formulate those experiences of, of people on the ground and shape a narrative around it that's perhaps easier for policymakers 
to, to grasp in, in an output or a series of outputs than in the many, many voices uh, that they will hear every day. The academics can sort of corral uh, those voices uh, and, and construct them into a, a narrative and also, as, as before, take that longitudinal view. I mean, as, as you know, Francis's work uh, was demonstrating that, that sort of how has housing changed over a hundred years or how has uh, how have uh, experiences of live music changed over 30 years what's the, the experience of the festival circuit over 40 years that those kinds of stories uh, can be condensed uh, by academics and policymakers because that's what we do as part of our day-to-day -day work mm. um Francis, Rebecca, is there anything that you'd like to add to that? I think I'd I'd um, agree uh, with Adam there that that the narrative has a very strong role, and I think that um, I, I've I've been writing a bit in the Guardian in other places like that, and I think uh, stepping out of the academic um, environment is actually really helpful in terms of the built environment. So I've been involved in two architectural competitions uh, because suddenly this is an absolutely hot topic and I think then the, the minute these ideas get out into practice and then you start to get engagement with with the general public although with home-based work it's a particular problem because um, I think for years people have tended to work covertly because they either fear they're breaking some regulation or other or they actually are breaking some regulation or other so so it's a very interesting moment in time because suddenly you know I mean everyone on this call is in their own home and that that from my perspective is incredibly interesting and suddenly we're all able to be much more open about it and mm. um, just on that point actually Rebecca I was going to come to you um because just thinking about what's been said about, you know, how uh, academics and researchers can help to construct narratives and the role that can play. Something you mentioned earlier was how in a lot of the media work you've done, you've had to be quite careful um, to, card, to kind of guard against your research being presented as representative of certain positions and you've had to kind of work to separate you know what your research is saying from what your own personal position might be how do you think researchers can guard against that or avoid being put in that kind of position um so a colleague of mine we had a we had a discussion in my center quite recently about doing media work and um, and interviews and those kinds of things and a colleague of mine who does a lot um, he said that he he thinks to himself is he's presenting um, he's presenting the argument for a particular position and it's not him. <laughs> okay, so what's being evaluated by the media or the public is this argument and this position, and it doesn't need to reflect upon himself in any way. So um, some of the topics that we work on can be quite controversial. So I work on immunity passports. Some, I've had a few emails from people who are very upset about the idea of them and have called me all sorts of things. Um, but colleagues of mine work on things that are much more controversial than that. Um, things to do with abortion, um, things to do with mandatory vaccination, these kinds of questions. And, um, and I really admire the way that they've managed to uh, kind of um, separate themselves from the arguments to some extent and to guard against uh, the kinds of destructive effects of people being quite upset and quite aggressive when it comes to those things. So, so I think one one thing to do is just um, to try and dissociate yourself from it to some extent, and to and hopefully that allows. I mean, my aim is to, as I mentioned before, to try and maintain kind of intellectual honesty and not to allow my own ego and desire to um, win an argument or for people to like me um, to get in the way. And that's <laughs> obviously that's. Um, I'm only human and uh, and I both want to win arguments and for people to like me. So, so I struggle <laughs> with this sometimes. Um, but I think that's really important. And, and, and I constantly try and go back to this question and be it immunity passports or whatever I'm thinking about or talking about to think, OK, do I really 
do I really believe this? You know, am I just am I am I just like playing a philosophical game here and trying to construct the strongest argument possible for this position, whatever it may be, or do I actually do I do I kind of back myself to that this is the right position to hold? Um, and I try and do that. I think it's hard. It's very easy to get wrapped up in um, uh, much more kind of human tendencies, as as I was mentioning, but. Um, that's that's my attempt. I'm sorry, Alice, I've, I've actually forgotten the question you initially asked. When I, <laughs> I don't know if I've answered it now. You have answered it. Some other question. <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. And I suppose if we just um, continue with the media aspect of this for a moment, it was quite striking in what several of you said at the beginning, which is how actually quite soon after the pandemic hit, you found that you were getting a lot of media coming to you rather than you having to, to go to them. Um, so I suppose that there's a broader question there about how, from what a lot of you have said, practically research has perhaps been more difficult to do over the last year, but actually has impact work or perhaps aspects of impact work been a little bit easier if you've got the media approaching you, if you're not having to go into television studios, but you can do things for your home? Is that something that's perhaps felt easier? And are there any lessons, I suppose, that we might take for that about future impact work? Um, Sabrina, do you want to kick us off? Um, I have to say that my experience was extremely limited before, if not in existence. So I, I wouldn't be able to tell you if it's easier to be in a studio. What's really easy, however, is when you get a, a message on your phone, you get a WhatsApp message from a journalist that says you're on in 10 minutes. It's easy to just jump to the other room, put something on and then look half presentable, at least from the top. So that's really convenient. Uh, what's less convenient is the children aspect. We, we, we touched upon that. Um, it's challenging uh, at times to, to make little ones understand that mommy cannot just open the door. Uh, and I think that speaks to a very big reality of, of uh, also of, of carers and, um, and predominantly female academics um, that had to mediate the context of research and impact work with their family life. Um, there's a lot of chat about it, I'm sure, in all departments. Uh, I've had those discussions with my colleagues, how we've had to um, we were always academics and mothers, um, but now we, we have to kind of combine both. And um, at, at times I felt like some people wanted to apologize for, for being mothers. And then uh, all of a sudden we saw a shift as well in the media and, 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 and all these, these funny bits of interviews where we see children come in and the different reaction of parents are extremely patient. In my opinion, I admire those, those women being so patient with the, the child coming. Um, but I, I think that that's a very important aspect that should be kind of brought forward uh, we're researchers, but we're, we're also very much humans. Um, so yeah, the impact work for me has been much easier uh, just because I, I became all of a sudden more interesting in my research because I, I work on, on rationing. So um, utilitarianism or egalitarianism were, were things that were shown in the media, which I, I had seen not so frequently before. Uh, so it was easier that in that aspect, yes, I guess. Mm. Um, Francis, what's your experience been like? Because you mentioned that you've been holding a, a huge number of events just this week alone. You've been invited to speak a lot. Have, have you found that impact work is perhaps a bit easier? Um, my experience has been completely extraordinary. It's been accelerating um, as, as the pandemic has progressed. And I think the lesson that I've learned is that research really only maybe really impacts when it's necessary and suddenly when it's relevant suddenly the impact you know i used to wonder how to how to in, in fact at the beginning of covid i wondered how how i was going to get my research to impact on the situation and now i simply don't worry about that because the the, the invitations plop into the the inbox and you know people find me from all over the world and are interested I suppose because I've been doing it for 20 years, I've been sort of slogging at this at this slightly eccentric corner of architectural research that suddenly has enormous relevance. So I suppose, yeah, from my perspective, um, impact has been really easy um, mm. during COVID. And, and in a way, I feel as if I'm preparing the ground for some quite big research projects. So, um, I, 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 
I think that for me, the jury's out as to whether research is more difficult under under COVID, mm. because I think that um, my experience with Zoom is very good. And so I have a feeling that I might well be able to do good interviews, make good case studies with people, you know, even without meeting them in person. Mm. Um, I'm conscious that time is rapidly running out. Um, So one final question to each of you, which is drawing on your experience over um, the last year, all of the things that we've spoken about. If you were able to give one piece of advice to colleagues in the arts and humanities about how they can best um, create impact with their work, how they can influence some of the major policy issues and challenges over you know, the next year, the next five years, next 10 years. What do you think that one piece of advice um, would be? Adam, let's start with you. Um, going back to what we said before, I think play the long game. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Have the, the confidence in the value of your work. There's not going to be sort of pivoting to something completely different. Think, I need impact. I'm going to go and look at this. Um, will make your research even more difficult. Um, there, there are all the sort of immediate things you can do, write articles for newspapers, reach out to uh, APPGs or, or inquiries, uh, but just keep, look at the work that you've already done and are already doing and try and filter that through uh, the, the impact lens rather than, Try and think how can I do research that will have impact? You are already doing research that can have impact. Uh, the question is you know, the, the channels through which you distribute it. There's a message of hope for everybody in there. <laughs> um, Rebecca, what would be your one top tip? Well, that's so interesting. So I was thinking exactly the opposite of Adam, and I <laughs> don't know whether <laughs> so, so what I did was um I I was at the time the pandemic hit, I was working on responsibility, kind of technical philosophical arguments around responsibility for habitual behavior. It seemed completely irrelevant for the COVID-19 pandemic. And I just took on this new topic, which was immunity passports. Now I have a background in bioethics, so like I'm reasonably well positioned to think about, okay, what are the kinds of arguments that are relevant here? What are the ethical issues around immunity passports? Um, and uh, so to some extent, there's a, there's, I guess there's a long game there, like all of my training and all of, all of my um, experience was relevant and useful, but essentially this was a, a new topic for me. Um, so I was thinking the best way to have impact is to think of something that's important that you can contribute to um, and to crack on and do some work on it. But then that's the way I quite like working. So I quite like, you know, maybe shorter projects getting to grips with a new topic. Um, I'm not necessarily a typical philosopher in that my strengths perhaps don't lie in like um, spending 10 years working on whether this semicolon should be in that position or, you know. uh so so yeah but you know take it or leave it adam might is probably right i'm probably wrong on this but i think they're opposite sides of the same coin though actually i think we were just talking about slightly different ways of expressing a similar thing like your topic might be new but the mm. you talk about that hinterland of yeah yeah, I think that's you're nice. right. Yeah, we agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, Francis, your top tip. My top tip always is to find something that you're passionate about, that you find really, really, really interesting. Because I think uh, casting around for a subject that's going to be, that's going to be make impact, that's going to make your name as a researcher is a hopeless, it's, it's, it's a, a, not a good path. Um, so I always say to people who want to do a PhD, don't do a PhD because you want a PhD. Only do a PhD if you've found something that you have to research. And I think it's the same. And I think any situation can throw up things that, uh, that in some ways trigger us to go, oh, my Lord, look at that. I've got to find out about that. I need to do some work on that. That, that would be mine is, is follow your interest um, ferociously. And Sabrina, last but very much not least, what would you say? I very much echo what uh, Francis is saying, but I would also speak to not um, being fearful of putting an idea out there, uh, 
I remember when I started my research on uh, on healthcare reforms, people thought, oh, this is not really law, it's not really philosophy, it's neither, quite frankly, uh, but now it's interesting. So <laughs> I think the bottom line is, is um, to stick to what we, we know and, and what resonate with us uh, as researchers, but also as individual, because it's about connection, it's about connecting through ideas to research, helping people really is what we're all here for, I imagine. So I think it's about, just putting yourself out there uh, in the sense that stick to what you know, um, stick to what you're good at, but also uh, have the confidence that if it's a little bit outside of the box, it might be a very good idea, actually. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm afraid we will now have to draw this event to a close. Uh, audio and visual uh, of this event will be available on the IFG's website in the next 24 hours if there's anything you'd like to watch back. Um, and really, I'd, I'd just like to finish with three big thank yous. Um, the first is to all of you for watching and for submitting all of your questions. I apologise that we were not able to get to all of them. I'd also like to thank the AHRC for its support. We're delighted to be partnering with the AHRC for another event next Monday, that's the 22nd of March, looking at how governments can combat misinformation. We've got a great panel lined up for that. Please do join us and you can find full details on our website. And finally, please do join me in saying a huge thank you to Sabrina, Rebecca, Adam and Francis for their time this afternoon and for their valuable insights. Thank you so much for being with us.